Scripture today is Ephesians 1, 15 through 2, 10. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of the disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brennan. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Very good. Uh, That's what we're here to celebrate, right? The resurrection of Jesus, and it's a complete game changer. Really, no matter who, even if you don't even believe in Christianity, it's a game changer. There's a French philosopher named Luc Ferry, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He wrote an international bestseller, and um, it's a bit of a miracle because it's it's just a philosophy introduction of of philosophy. And he, he, like I said, he's not a Christian, and he spent some time explaining how the Western world went from embracing Greco-Roman philosophy, Greek philosophy, the Greco-Romans, and their Greek philosophy, how that shifted to a Christian philosophy that marked the Middle Ages. And I was very interested to see how a non-Christian would explain this shift. And you know what the answer is that he gave, what he believed? It was the Christian doctrine of resurrection that caught a flame in the Western world. And just spread throughout. And the West was changed as a result of that belief. Because finally, there was an answer for this profound human question of death, of our own mortality. Christianity gave a satisfying answer to that big question that we all ask. Well, I believe that if the resurrection changed the course of of human history 
just kind of even just looking at it culturally, that the power of the resurrection has the ability to transform the course of our own lives. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is consider a text that we were considering last year, the book of Ephesians. But we're going to look at it from a slightly different frame. Uh, We're going to consider three things, resurrection power, past, present, and future. Those are the three headings. So resurrection power, past, present, future. Paul begins the text in a prayer, so we're, we're going we're to pray as well. Let's pray as we enter into this text. Our Father, we confess to you that apart from your Spirit, opening our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to the truth of your Scripture, we are just sort of groping around in the dark. We need your Spirit to come to us, to enlighten, illuminate, reveal your Word to us, to pierce hearts. I pray if there are folks here that are, that are not Christians and are just kind of checking things out, that your Spirit would, would help them understand the truths of Christianity. I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly uh, this passage and the resurrection hope that it describes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So... Paul begins by praying for the church at Ephesus. How do you pray for others? We we regularly do this as a church. We meet in little groups and we pray for one another. Somebody has a challenge or a dilemma and we pray specifically for those challenges. And that's a good thing to do. The church at Ephesus, like much of the early churches, has persecution in their their lives. Uh, There's a story in the book of Acts where there's a mob riot that blames Christians for some issues that are going on in the city of Ephesus. And Christians are finding themselves like dragged into the streets in the middle of this mob and being persecuted for their faith in Christ. So that's just like one thing that's happening. Not to mention, I mean, mortality in this age is old, so people are dying, there's sickness, there's all sorts of challenges. And this is what Paul prays in in these verses. He prays that they would know the gospel very briefly. That's what he prays. And really three things about the gospel. The hope to which they've been called. The glorious inheritance that awaits them. And the power that's at work within them. Look at verse 19. He prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. So this power is presently at work in us, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he says, Paul says, we've seen this power in the past for the church at Ephesus just like a few decades earlier. We've already seen it. It's resurrection power. It's the power that brought Jesus from death to life. Look at verse, look at verse 20. It's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, look, I want you to know this. You can't know it on your own. The Spirit has to reveal it to you. But you have, church at Ephesus, and by extension us, if you're in Christ, you have inside of you resurrection power. The power that raised Christ from the dead. And not only did this power raise Christ from the dead, but look at at verse 20, continuing. 
This power also seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see what this power has done? I want you to imagine approaching the tomb of Jesus on Friday or Saturday, and you, you, you push it. You, maybe one hand you push it, and then you take two hands, and you, push, you try to push the stone in front of that tomb, and you realize this thing is not moving. It is secure. It is intact fully. It's immovable. In resurrection power on Sunday morning, that tomb started to shake. It started, it moved. It opened up for Christ. And I think this is what Paul is trying to say. In our lives, sin that we feel and that we struggle against and that impacts our families and our, our, our work situations and our children and ourselves, and the sin that is all around us feels oftentimes as immovable and as intact as that tomb. But what Paul is saying is, look, resurrection power shook that tomb loose. It can, it can shake your sins loose as well. It can break up what, what otherwise appeals, appears immovable. Struggles that have gone on for decades. Resurrection power. They're no match for resurrection power. And it's at work within you, Paul says. See, Paul is saying this resurrection power is not just a vestige of the past. It didn't just happen for us 2,000 plus years ago. Resurrection power is presently available to Christ. It's here right now. If we were in like a nuclear power plant, we would be kind of aware of the power that's present in that plant. We'd probably maybe walk a little more carefully. We wouldn't just be casually running around and messing with levers and pushing buttons. We know that there's great power, and so we, we would respect that. We would have a heightened sense of that. Resurrection power is far greater than nuclear power. And it's, it's in our midst right now. It's in us, Paul says. Presently available. And that's what, that's what he, he says it in verse 19 at the beginning. Know that this power is at work toward us. He's using it to enliven us. But verse uh, chapter 2, Paul begins to explain, he elaborates on how resurrection power has been at work in us. Look at what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following Satan. Right? This is, that's a pretty dire picture, right? Our sin has us dead, much like Christ in the tomb, lifeless. And not only that, but we're following the course of this world. So there's kind of the way of God, and there's the way of this world, and we're moving, we're just following like lemmings, the way of the world, moving away from God. 
I, March Madness, we had a good, great basketball game last night. I don't know if anybody watched, but one of my favorite things about these basketball, this basketball tournament is the miracle comeback. You know, a team is down by like, say, 12 or 15 points. There's like four minutes left in the game, and somehow they string together a series of stops defensive stops, and somehow they string together a series of possessions in which they score, maybe a lot of three-pointers involved, and then, and then they tie the game, and there's like seconds left, they, the team dribbles down court, hits the game-winning shot as the time expires, it's a miracle comeback. If you're a fan of one of those teams, that, that sticks with you. You'll think back to that game, and you'll think about it with fondness. Paul is describing the miracle comeback of miracle comebacks. He says, you were, you were dead spiritually. You were on course to death, on course to your whole life falling apart, to losing everything. That's, that's verses one through three. And then he says, verse four, but God. And then he, we'll come back to verse four, but what, what, what has God done? He's made us alive. He has literally used, if if we're in Christ, we've experienced a resurrection. Not the resurrection, but a resurrection. We've been made new. We've been made alive in Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul is saying. Look, just what he did to Christ and changed his, he's saying it parallels in your own life, Christian. Like you have been raised to life, made alive. He resurrected us. And Paul wants us to know that this power is at work within us. And it is a power. The the Greek word for power there that we saw back in verse 19, the greatness of his power, it's dunamis, which is where we get our word uh, dynamite. Like it's explosive power. It it, It blows things up. It blows up tombs. It blows up death. It's explosive. God has created a world laced with power. You know, and one of the, one of the part of the, what people do, what humans do, is we, we tap into that power. You could almost think of God's creation as being filled with these little outlets, power outlets throughout creation. And whether it's, um, whether it's wind power, water power, fossil fuel power, fire power, solar power, there's power all around us. And it's incredibly powerful. I've, you know, you, you go on a plane. I, I'm always struck by the fact that this enormous piece of machinery, an airplane, I don't know the details, but through firepower and fossil fuels and all this stuff working together, that thing can like get off the ground somehow. It's incredible. The amount of power contained in that one machine. And there, we could even say rocket ship or whatever. But here's the point. We have not been able to find a power that can overcome death. And Paul says, look, you've got that power in you. Power that can turn the world upside down. That can raise the dead. It's the power of all powers. And it comes to us by the Spirit. Paul says, you're plugged in. To resurrection power. That's what's at work within you. And it's important that we realize this because 
The Christian life can be difficult, it can be encouraging. We've got community builders going on, and maybe, maybe, maybe you've experienced some discouragement in that. We, we begin to kind of uh, reveal and confess our sins and our struggles, and it can be difficult. Our lives are, are, are such, such a mess. I think of uh, Charles Howard. There's a movie, Seabiscuit, and the main character is Charles Howard. He's this entrepreneurial, optimistic Guy, it's the early 1900s. Cars are just coming onto the scene. He's got a bicycle shop. This is the very opening of the movie. And a man brings to him a car that has some trouble. He says, can you fix it? And Charles Howard, being the optimist that he is, is like, sure, I can fix it. And so the next scene, you see him, and he's got every part of that car taken apart. It's just like he's just surrounded by car parts. And he's just sitting there looking at it all. And you feel this feeling of being overwhelmed. Like, how is this thing going to get put back together? And that's how we can feel in, in, in this Christian life. Our own lives, the lives of people in the congregation, the sin. feels like we're just like this mess laying all around. And what Paul is saying is, look, resurrection power, it not only can put all of it together, but it is. And it will. Be patient. It's at work within you. And that's what Paul is, is telling us. We need that encouragement. Now, it's important that we consider the basis by which God gives us this power, this resurrection power. And he says it in there back in verse 4. There's two things, really. It says, but, but God, uh, being rich in mercy, so that's the first thing, he's rich in mercy. And the second thing is, because of the great love with which he loved us. So his love and his mercy, those are the two things that, those are the two drivers of this resurrection power towards us, love and mercy. Now, let's take up the love first. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's kind of a difficult thing to get your mind around, because of the great love with which he loved us. It kind of sounds circular, doesn't it? And it is, right? It is circular. Here's a paraphrase. He loved us because he loved us. Let me suggest to you, this is the best kind of love. If a spouse says, why do you love me? What do you say in reply to that? It's a tricky one. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you have this wonderful personality or sense of humor or work hard or whatever it is. I love you because, and whatever comes after the because becomes a little condition for my love for you. But here's the thing. What if you lose your good looks? It happens to us all over time. What if you lose your, what if there's an accident and you lose your personality or your sense of humor? The best answer to that question, the most satisfying answer to that question is, I love you because I love you. Because my love is set on you. It's not based on any condition in you it's based solely on my love for you. That's covenantal love. And that's the love of God in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. But not only that, he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Now, it's important that we kind of understand what, by God's terms, rich in mercy means. 
Because we kind of bring kind of our own understanding of, of, of what that is. Well, what does it mean for God to be rich in mercy? There is this star that's out in space. Um, it's not the biggest, but it's pretty big. It's, it's so big, if it was an empty jar, and we poured planets into it the size of planet Earth at the rate of 100 planet Earths per second. So this, we, it was like a, the star was a jar, pretending, and we're pouring planet Earths at the rate of 100 planet Earths per second. How long would it take to fill up that star? You ready? 30,000 years. That's how big that star is. And when we think of like big, we're thinking Sears Tower. That's big. Okay. And if we're talking about richness in terms of God, I'm not saying it's like, oh, Betelgeuse, that's your standard. That star that I mentioned, that's your standard. No, that's just moving us in the right direction for what it means for God to be rich in mercy. See, Paul says, being rich in mercy, we're like, we're like the, uh, you know, the three, four-year-old that thinks that like $100, if you have $100, you're rich. No, we're bringing a, a piggy bank to a billionaire. Like God being rich in mercy, we can't get our minds around what exactly that means, but it goes beyond our wildest imagination. Listen to how Dane Ortland describes it. He says, referring to this verse here, he says, God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. He's not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on that day when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Doesn't that text just kind of sing to your heart? It's beautiful to think of God being so lavish in his mercy. And that mercy and that love has directed his resurrection power to us, right now, in the here and now, it's operating deep in our souls. Resurrection power, presently. Same power we saw worked in Christ in the past, present in our midst. But it doesn't stop there, because this power, it's, 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 it has a future as well. It's going to rock the whole universe, and that's, let's consider that now. It's a resurrection power in the future. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1, we read it a moment ago, but we'll read it again. It says that God put all things, I'm going to fill in the pronouns because it gets kind of confusing with all the pronouns. God put all things under Jesus' feet, 
and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. And this, is, this, is the, this is the kicker. Look out. Verse 23. The church is his body. The church is the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. So Jesus has been exalted as Lord and King over the whole cosmos, Paul is saying. And get this. His church, us, with all of our struggles, resurrection power is going to take us, heal us, and lift us up to Christ so that we get put together with him, our head, as his body, and we rule together, we rule and reign with him over all things. That somehow his church completes his rule over all things. This is what Paul is saying. That our lives are on the exact same trajectory as Jesus's life. Now, Revelation chapter 21 puts this well, and this is John describing the end of all things, right? When Christ returns and establishes the new creation. You can turn there if you like. It's Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. We're gonna, I'm going to read it. John is describing what he sees at the end. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Jesus said this, Behold, I am making all things new. There's a lot of news in there. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. I'm making all things new. The Greek has a couple of words for new. There's neos, which is where we get our word neon from. And it means uh, new as in like time. So I'll give you an example. Um, let's say, well, for, well, I'll give you one example. My son has some school shoes. And they got worn out, falling apart. There's like holes in the bottom of the sole. So we're like, it's probably time for a new pair. We got him new shoes. Exactly the same as the old shoes, just new in time, right? No different, just new shoes. Or here's another example, a pencil. You get, a, uh, you get this kind of your standard school issue, number two pencil, and you, over the course of the school year, kids, you use that thing, and it's a little nub with an eraser, silver eraser holder, and that's it. That's all that's left. You realize it's time for a new number two pencil. And so you go to your teacher, and she hands you a new, exact same pencil, it's just now, right, it's new. That's naos, right? It's new, but it's the exact same thing that preceded it. It's just new. The Greek, there's another Greek word, though. Kainos. And that means new, not just in time, but new of a completely new, qualitatively new. Like, if it was a pencil, a number two pencil, now all of a sudden it's like the fanciest mechanical pencil. That's kinos new. It's a, it's a different type. Or a fancy new shoes. Not the same old shoes. Do you know what John is, what word he's using here? Kinos. It's qualitatively different. 
It's a transformed heaven and a transformed earth. It, it, resurrection power has brought an entirely new creation, an entirely new you. Does it have continuity with the past you? Yes, it does. Remember Jesus, his glorified body? There were, there were some, in some ways it was recognizable, but in some ways it was new and transformed and glorious. And that's what's being described as this somewhat recognizable world with trees and clouds and blue sky and green grass, but it's, it's transformed at the same time. It's different. It's greater. It's more beautiful. Everything just sort of pops in a beautiful way. The Spirit of God is sowing seeds of resurrection all throughout the universe. And our promise, Paul's promise, is that we would know that that power is at work in us presently. And there's a future hope that one day all of those seeds of resurrection, one day all of creation is going to explode in resurrection and be transformed gloriously. Do you realize how big this resurrection thing is? It's a sign of what's to come. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign of what's to come. And we tend to think of Easter as, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of dress up, put on the old pastels and come together and worship and maybe have a lunch together. Paul is saying, look, this is the way of the future. Resurrection. Change. Yeah. So back to the original question, is change possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's, it's not only possible, it's inevitable. There will be a new creation, a kainos new. It will be changed, transformed, completely different. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. In fact, our own Christian lives, right at this moment, it, it's a walk of death and resurrection. We die to our sins and we live to righteousness. We confess our sins. We die to our sins and we live to righteousness. Faith and repentance, that's the walk. It's a mini Death and resurrection, every day of our lives as Christians, awaiting the big resurrection. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is such surprising news, and yet at the same time, your creation speaks of it. Even right now, the trees, uh, the birds singing, and the sunshine, and the beautiful weather, and the grass becoming green, and the buds showing up on the trees. We've, we've been through death this past fall and winter. And new life is exploding. But it's not, it's naos new. It's not kainos new. It's going to die again in the fall. But, but still, that pattern of resurrection, of death and then life is built in to your creation. We pray that your spirit, as Paul prayed, would give us eyes to see uh, the hope it was Paul prayed, the hope to which we've been called, the glorious inheritance that awaits us, and the power that's at work within us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that's already raised us in Christ from spiritual death to life. We pray that you would give us a keen sense of all these things, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.